Hey everyone, this is Jack with Cardboard Herald, and I know that you're used to hearing my voice on the podcast and occasionally Luke Minch's, but today you are hearing the debut of Josh Simons, who has started contributing reviews to us. We're super excited about this, so please enjoy Josh's first debut on TCBH Reviews with Salem 1692. Welcome to the Cardboard Herald Reviews, where we give you audio versions of our game reviews and then go behind the scenes of our creative process. Salem, 1692. What do we burn apart from witches? More witches! Designed by Travis and Holly Hancock. Artwork by Sarah Keel. Published by Facade Games, 2015. 4 to 12 players. 20 to 40 minutes playtime. Review by Josh Simons. The year was 2017, and I was just entering a season of Kickstarter overload. No, wait. Well, well, that is true. We need to start our journey in 1692. This is the first year of the infamous Salem Witch Trials in Salem, Massachusetts. Fueled by subjective, spectral evidence, and iniquitous behavior. Whether from actual witchcraft, political conspiracy, or plain old-fashioned fear, there's gonna be a hanging. Or a burning. Or a pressing. To play or not to play? Fast forward back to 2017 as I'm considering whether or not to dive into this cardboard world of the witch trials. The theme fascinated me, however... I realized that slinging accusations of witchcraft may be a bit too macabre to fill out the table for a 4-12 player social deduction game. Honestly, after it came home to my shelf, Salem 1692 sat there for months under a certain shadow of skepticism, largely due to the theme. It's one thing to squabble over who is or isn't a werewolf, as werewolves are sort of a general monster trope with a sort of fantastical quality. Witches carry connotations of a deeper darkness, unchanged by a full moon, but hiding in our midst and acting as mediums to things forbidden. Salem 1692 is much more about ordinary people who have given themselves over to a spirit of fear and turned on each other than any conjuring. In truth, this may reek of the devil's stench as much as any spellcrafter, but that is a conversation for around the table. Finally, the opportune time came to learn this game at a big family get-together, and now it's become an oft-requested hit with my family, gamers and non-gamers alike, with players ranging from 7 to 67. Salem 1692 has simple roles, few rules, and just enough evidence to go on that your accusations are not completely wild-eyed and baseless, although playing in the spirit of mass hysteria would not be out of place. What do we burn apart from witches? At the beginning of the game, there are a few card decks that you'll be working with. Each of them are clearly differentiated on the backs of each cards for easy sorting. First up are the trial cards, where each player gets five of them to lay face down on the table, and one of those cards may designate you as a witch. There will be at least one witch in the game. Secondly, Town Hall cards, which are roll cards passed out among each of the players, are randomized and dealt 
to give each player their own asymmetric advantage. Where most of the card action is going to happen is from the playing deck, which is made up of a majority of accusation cards, but also includes game-modifying cards, which cannot be played on yourself, whose duration is determined by their color. Finally, there is the kill deck, which mirrors the town hall deck, and witches use it to determine who will be killed during the night. Each player gets a starting hand of three cards from the playing deck before the dawn phase begins. The game can be played with a non-player moderator, but if you're game savvy, you can also function as the town crier while playing the game. Basically, this means you close your eyes and moderate from memory. While it can be cumbersome, especially if you're also a witch, there's not much to remember. Inconceivable Deductions Upon waking from the dawn phase, the witches will have placed the revealed cat card in front of a player. The black cat kicks off the start of the game, signifying the first player. This can be tricksy because the black cat is the only card a player can give themselves. Did the witches just curse one of the town folk? Or did they fake out the townsfolk with a little self-benefiting self-harm? This is the perfect time to pull out your best Vizzini impression. Am I telling a lie or telling the truth? Or telling the truth to make you think I'm telling a lie which is actually a lie but really the truth? Spin your tails and the heads of whoever is not on your team. On your turn, you can either draw two cards from the player deck or play a minimum of one card from your hand on other players. In loose deduction fashion, you start eyeing the other players who looks the most shifty, unless you are the most shifty, and drop some accusations or evidence of witchcraft in front of another player. When seven X's collect in front of a player, the town conducts a trial. During a trial, the player who dropped the last accusation gets to pick one of the accused player's trial cards to reveal. Maybe you'll provide an alibi for another player, or put them in the stocks, or powerfully grant them piety or asylum. Where Salem diverges from other social deduction games is that you become an investigator, making attempts to discern the evidence in front of you that seems to lead to a conclusion that is just out of grasp. Many times you'll be going on a hunch, but it's a well-informed hunch. Unless you're being completely played by a clever witch, I believe This is a prominent aspect that makes it shine for everyone who I have played with. This dance continues until the conspiracy card is drawn, which was shuffled into the player deck at the beginning of the dawn. The player who drew the conspiracy gets to choose one of the black cat player's trial cards to reveal. Then, each player takes one face-down trial card from the player on their left, allowing the witch's witch's influence to spread. This can really tilt the game, because once you become a witch, you remain a witch, even if you lose that witch card during a conspiracy. Once all five of a player's not-a-witch trial cards have been revealed, or their witch trial card is revealed, they are dead and out of the game. A sly witch who passed on their card will look like an innocent. On the other hand, perhaps the town folk really did kill an innocent. The final card in the draw deck is the knight card. This resets the round, where the deck is shuffled again, with some new actions taking place. First, all witches open their eyes and decide which of the remaining players they will kill, and place the kill card that matches that town hall card face down on top of the deck 
for an upcoming thematic reveal. Strategically, the witches may choose to kill one of their own if that seems like viable deceptive play. It's win or lose as a team around here. The third type of trial card, which there's only one of, and we haven't talked about yet, comes into play now. The constable, as long as his trial card hasn't been revealed by accusations, will place a gavel token on one player to be protected from death during the night. Once all players open their eyes, they have opportunity to confess by revealing one of their trial cards, hastening their own demise to protect themselves from the witch's kill decision. The players have the length of a sand timer, included in the game, to make their decision. The kill card is revealed. Depending on each player's action, the witch hunt goes on. The rounds continue in this fashion until either all non-witches have been killed, all players have become witches, or all witch cards have been revealed. Throw the book at them. I'd be remiss not to talk about the production of this game. Sarah Keel's artwork is gorgeous, and honestly, that lone portrait of Mary Warren, also featured on the cover of the rulebook, is what drew me to the game to begin with. The cards, the hourglass, the gavel token all fit finely in a faux book box, complete with gold foil embossing and a magnetic closure to keep the components from tumbling all out while the game is on its way from shelf to table. Though if you were to sleeve your cards, I'm not certain the magnet would keep the book clasped closed. As somewhat of a meta aspect, Salem 1692 is the second edition of the game. Originally released as Salem, the game was rebranded as Salem 1692 to integrate it into Facade Games' Dark Cities line, entry being Volume 0. The other games in the series, Tortuga 1667 and Deadwood 1876, both have similar faux book boxes designed to be flawlessly displayed on your bookshelf together as a set. The rulebook really adds a nice touch of personality, thematically addressing different situations that can come up in a game. Each card is explained, and each character is described, but hidden in the middle are the five laws of Salem. These are a great way to start any game, as the laws lay out topics like if you're talking too long, other players can flip the hourglass on you and force your hand. If your hand leaves a card once you've played it but forgot to use your special ability, too bad. Dead players who speak shall be shunned. Deduction games seem to play better when the players can get into their characters and roleplay a little bit. But Salem 1692 edges you into that rule, into that with some rulebook sass. Weighing the scales. I enjoy social deduction games. Not that I'm great at them, really. I always end up thinking that I'm coming up with some airtight strategy that will fool the other players, but they end up seeing right through it. With Salem 1692, I like that there are actually shadows and movements that bring other players into suspicion. Someone being handed piety will make you question their alliances, whether they are a witch, a townsfolk, or one pretending to be the other. The tension builds over the day phases, but the game usually does not drag on. It plays to an appropriately satisfying length, not overstaying its welcome. Fortunately, this helps balance out the players who have been eliminated beyond whoever is now taking over the role as the moderator. Really, it's still enjoyable to watch the game play out from the sidelines. Whether you want to go for something spooky or remember history so it's not repeated, Facade Games gives you material to work with. Post-game, I found it sobering to open up the rulebook and read to the group the short history of each character we played as. 
Were they the first girl to accuse or be accused in Salem? Were they a ringleader to the accusations? Were they found guilty and killed? Similar to zombies or vampires or any other horror theme, witch trials is not going to be up everyone's alley. For the people that I play with, the fun of the game overcame their reluctance toward the theme. If you're looking for a game that can accommodate a large group of players that is accessible to a wide mix of players' game experience and also takes up a small amount of real estate on your ever-crowding shelf, Salem 1692 is a worthy addition to your library. Jack, one more time, and before we dive into Josh's additional thoughts and Q&A, I wanted to let you all know that I specifically asked Josh to talk about some kind of sensitive subject matter or maybe something that you're not necessarily used to listening to on this podcast in that Josh is, throughout all aspects of his life, a devout Christian. That's not the only aspect of his life. He is a very awesome, multi-dimensional dude who I've come to know quite a bit through my time doing the Cardboard Herald. But because of the subject matter that is in this game, I thought he could give an interesting perspective on that from a Christian lens. And so when he was asking about certain things that he could talk about during the additional thoughts and what questions I might have about his process, I asked if he would visit it from this lens. So I just wanted to throw that out here. Josh is an awesome reviewer. He is not exclusively reviewing games from a Christian perspective, but he is a board game reviewer who happens to be Christian, and I was so glad that he would do this. So sit back and enjoy additional thoughts and review Q&A for Josh Simon's review of Salem 1692. This was my first review for the Cardboard Herald, and I really enjoyed the process of writing it. Jack had lots of great suggestions to improve the flow of the review, and also helped me clear up some of the concepts that I didn't describe in a way that were understandable to someone who had not played the game. Salem, before it was branded uh, with the 1692 and put in Facade Games Dark City series, was the first game I had ever seen on Kickstarter. The artwork absolutely sucked me in, but I had never heard of Kickstarter at that point and the whole thing just seemed too foreign to me to back the project. By the time Tortuga 1667 launched, the next game in the Dark City series, I had already backed several projects on Kickstarter, and I was backer number one for Tortuga. I added Salem 1692 as an add-on. I had no idea if anyone would even play it with me, what with the witches and all. I didn't care. It looked too cool to pass up on. Uh, A question that Jack had posed to me after writing the review was, if I ever felt the theme of witchcraft and corrupt officials creating a moral panic came into conflict with my faith as a Christian? Uh, The answer is no, not really. Playing Salem no more makes me a witch than playing one night makes me a werewolf. This is a fantasy in the same way Sleeping Beauty is a fantasy. One of my favorite authors, Ted Decker, said that he paints evil with the blackest of brushes. And I just referenced Sleeping Beauty, in which Maleficent is one of the most undisguised evil figures in a children's movie. One of the themes you'll find in the Bible is the tension between light and darkness. Though the darkness seems overwhelming, 
and its presence permeates places we would not even suspect. It cannot overcome the light. Jesus dealt a death blow to the darkness with his death on the cross and sealed our hope in his resurrection. And what does that have to do with me finding any conflict in Salem? Well, I alluded to this in the review when I said that the game is much more about people who have given themselves over to a spirit of fear. Sure, there is darkness in their shadows by the presence of a witch or two, but how much deeper is the darkness worked out in the hearts of men and women who have been given over to a spirit of fear? The devil is an accuser, and we follow his footsteps when we do the same. To acknowledge darkness, in my opinion, is to bring it out into the light. This goes just as much for our own hearts as we may want to apply it to others, which is why I think Jesus tells us in the Gospel of Matthew to remove the log from our own eye before we attempt to take the speck out of someone else's. If I'm honest, this is something I struggle to live by every day. It's my hope that the light of God has overcome my darkness, even when I see it's still present. Self-righteousness, where darkness has taken up residence in our hearts and deceives us to its presence, makes the gameplay of deception and corruption even deeper with real-life application. These things are not bound to a game or the past. They are present. They are active. If playing this game with my kids helps them by seeing darkness and its destruction and the power of truth by darkness being brought into the light, I'll call that a win. Thank you for listening to the Cardboard Herald. As always, everything we do is ad-free and audience-supported. If you'd like to help keep it that way, find the Patreon link at the top of our webpage, CardboardHerald.com. We have several levels of support with various rewards. If you enjoyed the show, we do a whole bunch of other stuff, including reviews, interviews, and recommendations across writing, podcasts, and video. You can find that on our YouTube channel or by visiting any of our social media or our website. So with that out of the way, thank you again for listening to the Cardboard Herald. Thank you.